Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It's frightening to be told that old-fashioned playtime for our kindergarten kids is disappearing. Kids and free playtime are supposed to be as automatic as ketchup going with french fries. But not so, and a 2009 report by the Alliance for Childhood speaks to this problem. The title of the report is Crisis in the Kindergarten, Why Children Need to Play in School. The report is available on their website, and it's www.allianceforchildhood.org. That's one word, allianceforchildhood.org. Joan Allen is the co-author of this report, and I've learned that she also years ago was a school teacher, so we're going to get combined benefits of her experience. Thank you so much for being with us. Abby, you're so welcome. My pleasure. The report begins with this statement, that the proposal that child-initiated play must be restored to kindergartens will be dismissed and even ridiculed in some quarters. There's an emotional disconnect, to use the phrase in this comment. Are are we shortchanging our kids in order to reach some other goal? I think we're definitely shortchanging them, and I don't even think we're doing a very good job of reaching the other goal. So it's a dual problem. I think we're on the wrong track when it comes to kindergarten education. In which way? What, What specifically do you see as a problem? Well, I think the main problem is we've gotten very caught up with the idea that the earlier children start on, for instance, reading, writing, and arithmetic, the greater will be their long-term gains. There is virtually no research to show that, and there is some research showing the opposite. Mainly, however, we have a lack of long-term research. We tend to research things and show gains for a year or two, and then we're satisfied and we don't look to see what happens to kindergarten children, for instance, when they reach fourth grade, when most of those early gains have disappeared. And whereas a play-based program gives gains that last right into adulthood, and there's research showing that. Could you define what a play-based program is? Yes. A play-based kindergarten combines two major elements. One is giving children time for their own self-initiated, self-directed play. And the other is a, you know, that a teacher has goals and a curriculum, but they're handled in a playful, artistic way. So activities using manipulatives, little objects that children can manipulate or engaged with storytelling, with books, with songs, with verses. There's so many ways that kindergarten teachers have always enhanced children's language arts, for instance, through lively linguistic ways rather than through the worksheet and other ways that have become a very common part of kindergartens today. We contrast didactic instruction with this more play-based approach. Didactic meaning the more traditional study math, learn to read, those types of things. And the teacher giving a lot of direction. One of the things also that used to be a big problem, maybe it still is, but there has been so much concern of testing kids early. What's their IQ? Getting them into the special school, making sure they get accepted into the more advanced school. It's almost reached the point that it's a frenzy, and I don't think it's a good frenzy. I agree with you. I think it's a very unhealthy frenzy that parents have gotten themselves caught up in, also educators and policymakers. It goes right up and down the ladder. And again, it's based on, I would say a false assumption, which is the earlier children show cognitive gains, the better. What you really want to see in young children are cognitive gains that are linked with emotional growth and physical growth. So that may mean that you're slowing down that high-speed cognitive direction a little bit, but you're embedding cognitive learning with social-emotional learning and physical learning. Then it goes all the way down to the children's toes and stays with them for a lifetime. You mentioned in the report that some work or observations done in China and Japan show that before the second grade, the focus was more playful, but after the second grade, it became more didactic. It seems that for proper growth, there has to be a different 
different curriculum between early school, middle elementary school, and so on. I like the idea. I'd like your thoughts about that. Yeah, definitely. Children learn differently at different ages. So, you know, you think of college students who are capable of very direct cognitive learning. Also, high school students can handle quite a bit of that. Kindergarten children can only handle very small amounts of that, and yet they're being given two to three hours a day of direct cognitive instruction in many cases. They need to learn in a hands-on way, so through their own play and through guided activities that the teachers set up for them, but that are very hands-on and experiential. That's how young children learn best. Okay, so let's go to one of the basic definitions. You use the word play repeatedly. Mm -hmm. What, What do we mean by play? It's hard to define play. Play experts say it's like trying to define love. It's just too big. But there are ways to describe it, and we prefer the description used by play workers who are people trained in play over in the UK. And what they say about play is that it's a set of behaviors that are freely chosen, personally directed, and intrinsically motivated. So in simpler language, it means when you're looking at children, the ideas for play come bubbling up from inside of them. They get to choose and direct their own play. We're not directing it for them. When we direct it, it's something else. It's not really play. When they direct it, it becomes play. One of the things that a lot of kids do is resort to video games and computer games and the like as a mechanism of play. That's not as open-ended as the traditional notion of playing. Exactly. Think about who creates the storyline in the video game. It's an adult, an invisible adult even. When children play, they create their own stories, and that's vital. That's what comes bubbling up in them. Often we don't really understand where it comes from, but when they're playing a game that an adult has created, they have some freedom to manipulate within it, but it's always within the framework of what the adult has created. That's a very interesting point because some of the better children's educational playing devices are very boring to adults. I've raised my own children, I've watched various shows with them, and I realize that they need to see what they need to see. But to me, it's very boring. If I'm designing a game, I might be imposing what I think is interesting into their world versus what they need and what they can understand. Right. The more open-ended their opportunities are for play, the better, because they know deep inside what they need, and they'll bring that forward. But they also, like us, they can kind of veg out. They can become a little bit lazy about accessing these deeper needs that they have. So when we give them polished media or video games, they love them. They love the bells and whistles. But like saying, well, they love chocolate cake. We're not going to give it to them all the time because it's not good for them. It's the same thing. If you want heightened creativity and imagination from children, you don't want to feed them a daily dose of adult-derived entertainment. You want them to do the work. And also, the video games tend to isolate. They're playing by themselves. That's right. Most of the time they are, although people will always say, oh, but the beauty of some of these games is they play with a friend who's right there or they're playing, you know, with a big, wide social community. Yes, there is some of that, but experience with children who play a lot of video games is they often have a harder time with face-to-face relationships. Video playing is not the same as the kind of social negotiation that goes on between a group of children who want to keep their game going and there are endless difficulties that come along. And they learn how to maneuver that, how to negotiate, how to work things through in order to keep the play going. But with video games, it's different. It's not the same kind of a challenge for them. It's a two-dimensional experience as opposed to a three-dimensional experience. I think that's a very good way to put it.
That's right. We talk over and over that children learn through play. They learn how to do things. They experiment. They find a ball and they try to make it sit on the top of a couch and it doesn't stay there and it falls down. It's like they're little scientists. Exactly. And it starts at a very young age. The child in the high chair throwing things on the floor, annoying to the adult, delightful for the child, and they're learning about gravity. Why doesn't that thing just fly up in the air? You know, this is all new to them. They're exploring the day. Infants, toddlers, children, they're just constantly exploring if we let them. But more and more, we want them to sit in front of a screen and be entertained. And it really diminishes their ability to explore. And I think their ability to develop problem-solving skills, their ability to tinker and use their hands. This is a major concern these days that children don't know how to use their hands anymore for things. I could say more about that. Oh, I'd love to hear more about that because I agree with you. You don't see kids playing in the dirt anymore. No, exactly. A couple things. One is that there was a New York Times article recently saying that public schools were now hiring occupational therapists not only to work with children with recognized disabilities, but to work with typically developing children who didn't know how to use their hands. They couldn't hold pencils properly, paintbrushes, scissors, do any of the things we just normally consider part of healthy childhood. And this is because children don't use their hands very much in play anymore. On a bigger scale, there's a story about the Jet Propulsion Lab at Caltech, which has been a leader in the whole aerospace industry. And when their very esteemed engineers were retiring in the late 90s, and they hired cream-of-the-crop students from MIT and Stanford and so on, but they didn't know how to problem-solve. And the lab wasn't sure what to do. They could see that the quality of their work was going to go down. And then they learned that they needed to hire engineers who had tinkered with things when they were growing up, played and then tinkered because they knew how to problem-solve. And we've been hearing this concern from engineers now for the last 10 years in the Alliance. Whenever we do radio shows about this, some engineer will call in and say, it's a disaster in our field. The young people we're hiring don't know how to use their hands. So it has big ramifications. I find that very intriguing. Is some of it, going back to kindergarten, is some of it because the kids just aren't getting enough time in basic arts and playing with clay and Play-Doh and drawing all over the place? That's right. And sand and water and mud and just the basics of life that have always been part of young children's lives have virtually disappeared. I mean, it's still there in small places. And of course, in some schools, it's there still steadily. But in most public schools, our impression now is that play has been reduced to 20 to 30 minutes out of a full-day kindergarten, and a lot of that play is very teacher-directed. And many kindergartens no longer have sand tables, water play, any of the things that really engage children's hands, and for that matter, their minds. Because what the neurologists tell us is that an unusually large part of the brain is linked to the hand. So when children are playing and exploring with their hands, they're receiving huge amounts of brain stimulation and growth and new connections and so on. And without all of that hand activity, the brain actually languishes a bit, not as active. How responsive are school teachers and other folks, policymakers and the like, to your observations and your recommendations? We're getting a tremendous response from teachers and university educators. They are so grateful for our report, Crisis in the Kindergarten. They finally, somebody is documenting what we've been experiencing. It's much harder with policymakers. They are still of the mindset that the earlier the better, and let's have a linear approach to education and to raising children. Let's be highly logical and rational about 
about everything. Let's make sure everything is easily assessed and measured and so on. And a lot of school administrators, I would say, fall on one side or the other of that line. We've met great principals, for instance, who are very concerned about what's being demanded of them by standards for the kindergarten. And we've met others who are completely on board. Most principals, I have to say, have not had a background in child development of young children. So they're a little bit at a loss as to how to assess all of this. The fact that they don't have basic core experience and backgrounds in child development is the analogy that comes to my mind is the um, person who is determining the use or not use who works for an insurance company, for example, about the use of a medication with no medical background. Exactly. And it even comes closer to home in early education. The study we did of L.A. teachers showed that I think it was something like a third of them had never had a course in child development. Well, that's amazing. Because it's not a requirement in California. How did that happen? I don't know. It's, it's shocking, isn't it? You know, you can get accredited for like kindergarten through grade six, and all of your coursework is around curriculum for the elementary grades and not about child development for young children. That's like someone becoming a physician and never taking some basic biochemistry courses. It's, 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 it's troubling. So as you go out and you do these things, do people find rationalizations? And where I'm going with this is how we rationalize things to the to the point where we actually develop terms to justify our behaviors. And the term that I think is quite amusing and frightening, again, is edutainment, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So by education and entertainment at the same time, maybe that's okay as an adult, but not necessarily a four- or five-year-old. Right. You know, four- and five-year-olds like to work hard at what they're learning. They will go, when they're playing, they will go to enormous lengths to get things just the way they want it. And what we do with edutainment is we kind of diminish that ability in children. We make it too easy for them. You give children raw materials for play, cloth, rope, you know, stumps, sticks, stones, blocks, things of this nature. They create every world that they need and happily do it. Instead, we give them lots of toys where you push a button and the toy does all the work and the child just sits by and watches. Over time, that diminishes the child's own incentive to do that hard work of play and of learning. We are also very aware that there are basically three elements of growth, the cognitive element, the physical element, and the social-emotional element. Young childhood has to be focused on developing age-appropriate cognitive and physical developments. But one thing that we really can't measure, we don't have skills, is how to measure happiness or one's emotional development and whether it's good or not, we can measure cognitive development, we can measure physical development. So have we become so mechanical that we only value that which we can easily measure? Yeah, I think in a very real sense, that's exactly what's happened. We have become overly concerned about that which is measurable, and we feel very insecure with things that are not easily measured, like social-emotional. But I think under the term of children's well-being, one can put many different elements that you're looking at, some of which are measurable, some of which are more challenging to measure. UNICEF recently did a study of the 21 wealthiest countries and how were children doing using many different measures. And the U.S. came in in 20th place out of the 21 countries. In other words, our children are not doing very well here by a number of measures. Very sad and very scary. It's time for a change. Definitely time for a change. We've declared a decade for childhood. 2010 to 2020, where we all can focus on these issues and improve children's health and well-being.
I know it sounds so obvious, and people have said this sort of thing time and time again, the old notion that our children, they are our future, and we have to give them the best we can. Exactly. And this is exactly what you're talking about. When I was preparing to talk to you, the thing that kept troubling me is that I was under such such an assumption that kids could play. And it seemed like, how much could we really talk about play? Kids go out, they have a good time, they get dirty, they come home, they eat supper, they do something, and they go to sleep. But that's not it anymore. No, it's not it anymore. It is for some children, thank heavens. But it's not for many children. And I think the loss is enormous for children, but I've become aware of what a loss it is for us as adults, that it's actually really refreshing to be around playful children. They kind of remind us of the playfulness in us. And it's relaxing and very gratifying. I've been kind of observing it myself this year as I'm around playful children. And I think one reason we feel so harried as adults is that we're not around playful children anymore. So we just get caught up in our nose-to-the-grindstone existence. Not good. No, not good for any of us. You mentioned also in the report that kids who live in poverty may have some different needs, and they especially need to reap the benefits of play therapy. Could you talk a little bit about this? Yes. It seems now, and and we don't know as much as we should, but it seems that children living in poverty really have impoverished lives. They're spending a lot of time in front of screens and very little in hands-on activity. um, Parents don't feel safe letting them out in their neighborhoods, and in some cases that's really quite valid, whereas middle-class parents don't feel safe, but it's usually an unjustified fear. In really poor neighborhoods, it can be a justified fear, and yet there are ways to address that as well. But overall, one could say that children from low-income homes often have less hands-on experience with life, less books being read or stories being told than middle-income children. And so they are in even greater need, I would say, than the middle-income children to have a play-based education in preschool and kindergarten. But usually, because of a real desire to help them overcome the learning lag, they will tend to get more of a didactic instruction, even scripted programs where teachers have to follow an absolute script for hours a day than would any middle-class child have. So they get just the opposite of what they really need. They need more hands-on, rich experiences with the arts, with cooking, with gardening, with storytelling, with books, you know, with the whole world of things that are available to children and are pretty normal in the homes of most middle-class children. Interesting, fascinating, troubling, worthy of a lot of thought. Your article, or rather the report, ends with a very interesting sentence, and I'm going to read it. The withering of imagination in childhood is a looming catastrophe. That chills me and makes me want to become more active and try to undo that and prevent that catastrophe from worsening. Yeah, I think we're really looking strongly at a future with much less imagination and innovation, and that will affect everything Hmm. in American life. Joan Alman is the co-author of the report on childhood playing in kindergarten. It's, the title is The Crisis in the Kindergarten, Why Children Need to Play in School. It is available on the web at www.allianceforchildhood.org. This has been very interesting, and I hope it stimulates a lot of thought and gets people to action to help our kids as they begin what could be a really wonderful life. That's what we want for them. Thank you so much for being with us. You're so welcome. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Take care.